Thank you, Nathan, for reading God's word to us and also for praying for all of us, even as we sit here to listen to God's word. So I want to begin by saying uh, from my heart that as I come here to talk about this passage and expound this passage a little bit, I come to you in fear and trembling. And the reason is, this is the heart of the gospel. And we want to do justice to this and bring out clearly what God's word has to say to us this morning. Isaiah and the suffering servant. Let me begin with an illustration. There was a small boy in our boarding school um, who had been consistently late for dinner. One particular day, his warden had warned him to be on time for dinner, but he arrived later than ever. So he found when he got to the table that his classmates had eaten and gone already, and his warden was about to start eating. Quickly and fearfully, he sat at his place and then noticed what was set before him as a punishment was just a slice of bread and a glass of water. There was silence as he sat staring at the plate, absolutely crushed in his spirit. And suddenly he saw his warden do something. His warden reached over and picked up the boy's plate and set it before himself. And then he took the warden's plate full of food and set it in front of the boy, smiling warmly as he did the transaction. And when the boy grew up, he made the statement later on as a man. All my life I've known what God was like by what my warden did that night. That exchange that my warden did that night. Now hold the thought at the back of your minds as we look into the suffering servant of Isaiah. In fact, he's a suffering servant of the Lord. The name Isaiah means salvation of Yahweh or Yahweh saves. The book is one of the most important prophecies of the Old Testament. While little is known of the personal life of the prophet himself, he is considered to be one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament and ever, in fact. He lived most of his life in the southern kingdom of Judah, serving as a prophet in the royal court. And he prophesied mainly to Judah, although he had words of prophecies for the nation of Israel and also for the other nations surrounding Judah as well. So that's about the man Isaiah. We need to understand the international scene during the time of Isaiah for us to understand what these servant songs are and what the Lord is speaking to us, and especially what the Lord spoke to the people of the time of Isaiah as he gave these servant songs. And we also need to understand the context and the meaning of these servant songs, especially the song that we're going to look at today. Isaiah 52 verse 13 through verse 53, uh, chapter 53 and verse 12. So to understand this, we need to do a brief survey of the circumstances that prevailed in the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and the surrounding nations. Now here is Israel, if you look at it, and here is Judah at the bottom. And this is the Assyrian Empire to the east. Okay, so have those uh, images at the back of your minds as we go along in this, in this message. So we need to understand what are the conditions that prevailed in the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah and the surrounding nations. Isaiah of Jerusalem ministered from the year King Uzziah died, which is 740 BC, through the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and, uh, and, and also he may have lived past uh, Hezekiah into the reign of Manasseh. So he ministered uh, from the time of the death of Uzziah into the reign of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, and he may have well lived past Hezekiah's life into the reign of Manasseh as well. Now, during the reign of Uzziah, there was a widespread sense of peace that people enjoyed. But this peace existed because the Assyrian Empire was dormant in those days. But something happened in 745 BC. There was an aggressive imperialist, the emperor called Tiglath-Pileser III, who assumed the throne in about 7, 
745 BC. He was followed by three equally ambitious and combative kings, uh, Shalmaneser V, uh, Sargon II, and Sennacherib. As Assyria started conquering lands and moving westward, it first attacked Syria and then the northern kingdom of Israel. Syria fell in 732 BC and Israel fell in 722 BC. Now hear me please. While all of this was happening, it soon became clear to the southern kingdom of Judah that Judah would have to make up its mind about where its security lay in a day of threat. It is onto this scene and this setting that Isaiah stepped to minister. So that's the international scene of Isaiah's day. So let me give you an overview of the book of Isaiah here. And then we'll uh, slowly get going into what the servants, servant songs are. Isaiah announces God's surprising plan of grace and glory for the rebellious people and indeed for the whole world. God had promised Abraham that through his descendants, the world would be blessed. And God had promised David that his descendant would bring salvation to the world. But by the time of Isaiah, the descendants of Abraham and many members of the dynasty of David no longer trusted the promises of God. Instead, they believed in the false promises and in fact, the fears of the world. And Judah's unbelief during the crucial events of Isaiah's lifetime redirected their future away from blessing toward judgment. At this historic turning point, Judah moved away from, an, from being an independent nation under God's power to becoming submissive to pagan powers. If that is the case, what then would become of God's ancient promises? Is the gracious purpose of God defeated by Judah's sin? How could the chosen people of God survive? And the book of Isaiah answers all these questions. The book of Isaiah envisions three historical settings. And listen to me very carefully, please. In other words, you can divide the book of Isaiah into three major sections. Chapters 1 through 39 are set against the backdrop of Isaiah's own day in the late 8th century before Christ. And chapters 40 through 55 assume the Jewish exiles in Babylon in the 6th century BC as their audience. So Isaiah is ministering in the late 8th century BC, but he is looking forward to a time when the people of Judah will be carried into exile in the 6th century BC. And he is speaking to those people. They are the primary audience there. Uh, or they're the audience there as Isaiah is speaking these words in chapters 40 through 55. And in chapters uh, 55 through six, 56 through 66, which is the third division of the book, uh, they take the returned exiles and subsequent generations of God's people as their backdrop. Now, it would be a mistake, however, to suppose that the chapters have relevance only to the assumed audiences. The long-range prophecies of chapters 40 through 66 challenge all the people of Judah in Isaiah's time to accept their role in a story that is headed towards a glorious future and to live faithfully in light of that glorious future. And also to us, the entire book as canonical scripture addresses all of us and in fact all of God's people until Christ's return. So let me just take you briefly through these uh, sections and give you an overview or a survey of these three major sections. First, in Isaiah's own day, Isaiah prophesied in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These are the kings of Judah. And that's what Isaiah 1.1 says. Called by God in the year that King Uzziah died, which is 740 BC, his long ministry began. The external threat of Isaiah's day was the hostile Assyrian Empire, which was rising to power in the east. The question that Judah had to answer because of this threat was about her trust in what, uh, trust in God. In what will the people of God trust for salvation? 
in human strategies of self-rescue self by making coalitions with other nations or in prophetic promises of God's divine grace. This question of what and whom to trust is something that comes to the fore uh, in this part of the book of Isaiah. Actually, it came to the fore on two occasions. The first occurred in 735 BC during the reign of Ahaz. I'm not going to get into the details because we don't have time for that. The second crisis occurred in about 701 BC during the reign of Hezekiah. The Lord brought dramatic deliverances, saving Jerusalem from destruction and his people from the exile. He, he defended his city, uh, the city of David, for David's sake. And so the first part of the book, which is chapters 1 through 39, uh, largely is filled with indictments of the nation for her sin and the impending threat of Assyrian invasion. We now come to the second part of the book. Second, the second part of the book, uh, we see that Isaiah was enabled by God to address the Jewish captives far away in Babylon in the 6th century BC. The prophet had no idea when that captivity would come. For him, it could have come right after the death of Hezekiah. And that would mean his own audience might be the people to go into exile. So he began to prepare them. But it would not be that generation that would go into exile. We all know that the exile began about 100 years after the death of Isaiah. So the setting of the second part of the book is Babylon and the people who are in exile. And what is the message that Isaiah gave the exiles? What does he have to say to the exiles? He announces a promise that God is coming with a world-changing display of his glory. And to prepare for his coming, the exiles must return to the promised land and they must do three things. Number one, they must not be discouraged by the impressive but empty culture of idolatry in which they live. They must not be discouraged by the impressive but empty culture of idolatry in which they live. Number two, they should not despise God's use of a pagan conqueror, Cyrus the Great, as their liberator from Babylon. God named Cyrus the Great as the one through whom he would restore post-exilic Jerusalem. And Cyrus was empowered by Yahweh to do what was supposed to be done. If you read Isaiah 45, it explains that God chose Cyrus for the sake of Israel, even though Cyrus himself did not know the Lord. And because of the covenant promises to Israel, God would arrange the history of the nations around Israel's situation. That's the second message that Isaiah had to the exiles in Babylon. Then there's a third message that he gave, and that is, they must look by faith for a, great, for a greater liberator, in fact, somebody much greater than Cyrus, still to come, and he is the messianic servant of the Lord. Now, this is the context in which the servant songs come in, and I'll talk more about that. And this servant of the Lord will bring justice to the nations, and he will save his people from their ultimate captivity, not the exile, but the guilt of sin. And Isaiah's audience must know that God will restore the exiles and then fulfill the mission of Israel by means of this servant, whom he will raise up at an unspecified time in the future, but after the return from exile. And this is where the story is headed. And since the faith of God's people had already proven weak, God pledges that he alone will accomplish this by his grace and by his might and for his own glory. And this, these are the three messages that Isaiah gave to the people in exile. And then we come to the third uh, section of Isaiah, the third major one, where Isaiah addressed the returned exiles and subsequent generation of God's people. He challenged them with the message of hope to keep their faith and obedience steady until God fulfills all of his promises. His prophetic eye looks beyond the deceitfulness of this world all the way into the final eternality of, of, of God's renewed people. Now, this is the glorious vision of the new heavens and the new earth in the age to come. So this is a brief overview or a survey 
of the book of Isaiah. So the first 39 chapters are in the setting of Isaiah's own day where he ministered uh, from the time of Uzziah's death into Jotham's reign, into Ahaz's reign and Hezekiah's reign. And then the second part of the book was uh, chapters 40 through 55. Uh, Isaiah looks forward to a time when Judah will be in exile in Babylon and he's speaking words of comfort and hope to them that God will fulfill his promises. He will bring them back and they have a glorious future. And then verse, uh, and then 56 through 66, the third section of the book, uh, he talks about the, the returned exiles and all the subsequent generation of God's people or generations of God's people all the way up to the new heavens and the new earth. So that is a brief overview of Isaiah. Now we come to the specific thing that we need to look at, which is the servant songs or the servant songs of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 and 2, the prophet announces God's message of comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The prophet here is consoling Jerusalem by giving her a message of God's comfort. The exile is going to end, but not just that, the exiles may look for a new and a greater exodus journey back to the land, led by God in a triumphal parade of his glory on a smooth highway. So Yahweh, as the true God, fulfills his promises and brings to pass his predictions. He has a plan for world redemption. Not just the redemption of Israel, but he has a plan for world redemption. And this plan centers on his servant. And the passages that talk about the servant are called servant songs. They're called servant songs. There are four servant songs in Isaiah, and I've given the references here. Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 50 verses 4 through 9. And Isaiah 52 verse 13 through chapter 53 verse 12 which was the reading for us this morning and also the passage for our uh, study the servant theme in these chapters is strategic for God's plan for Israel and the whole world it started with God God's friend who's Abraham if you if you read Isaiah 41 you'll understand that clearly so it started with Abraham as God's friend God's promise to Abraham is the hope of Israel and hope for the whole world. And because of Israel's connection to Abraham as his offspring, Israel was called to be God's servant and a light to the nations to illumine them concerning the true and the living God. But sadly, she herself became blind following after other gods. Yet God in his grace says that Jacob is still his chosen servant and Yahweh will redeem Israel and give her new life by his spirit. The servant, however, is not merely Israel. There's a future servant who will restore Israel herself and finally succeed at being a light to the nations. And the salvation of Yahweh will finally reach to the ends of the earth, fulfilling the mission of the Abrahamic covenant through the servant who is going to be raised by the Lord. And this individual servant is clearly described for us in Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53 and verse 12. And he's called the suffering servant of the Lord. Now, please bear in mind that the servant's sufferings cannot be equated with Israel's sufferings in the exile because Israel there suffered for her own guilt and sin. But the suffering servant is going to suffer for the sake of others. It is a substitutionary suffering. It's a substitutionary death. So Isaiah here is not talking about the nation of Israel. It is talking about an individual servant who will come and redeem the nation of Israel. And this servant who arises in the line of servant Abraham and servant Israel is undoubtedly to be equated with the Davidic king whom they're waiting for. Now we come to the suffering servant of Isaiah and I'm going to take you through a very brief exposition so to speak or some comments 
on each verse of this passage because this is important. But even as we look at this passage and as we looked at all of the background and things, uh, we will certainly place it in the context of the background that we looked at. But I want you all to understand that we are standing on holy ground even as we look at this passage. It seems as though Isaiah had been given a front row seat at Golgotha and he's jotting down everything as they happened. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the message that redeemed us. So please listen as we look at this very carefully. This entire passage, 52.13 through 53.12, is divided into five stanzas of three verses each. Five stanzas of three verses each. And the first line of each section gives a summary of that section. Did you hear that? The first line of each section gives a summary of that section. And in fact, the first stanza, which is 52 verses 13 through 15, it gives a summary of the whole section. So let me take you through this five stanzas and see the message that uh, Isaiah has to give through the suffering servant or about the suffering servant. The first thing, we see that my servant shall prosper. The suffering leads to glory. Chapter 52 verses 13 through 15. The first three verses give us an overview of the section, like I said. And the, and the point of this section is this. The servant of the Lord will be exalted, but it is only through the humiliation of suffering. The servant of the Lord will be exalted, but it is only through the humiliation of suffering. Let's see what Isaiah has to say about this. The first thing that Isaiah has to say about this is that the servant will be exalted. The servant will be exalted. Look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This grand theme is announced in the first verse itself. The servant will be exalted. He'll be raised on high. He will be very high. But how is this going to be accomplished? How is the exaltation going to be accomplished? Now notice the words, he will act wisely or he will prosper. It means he will live skillfully according to the plan of God so that he may be prosperous and have good success. So the point here is that the servant will prosper as God intends him to prosper. The servant will prosper as God intends him to prosper. The servant will be exalted. Next, Isaiah says that the exaltation will contrast the humiliation. The exaltation will contrast the humiliation. Look at verses 14 and 15. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which uh, they have not heard, they understand. The theme announced in the first verse is now developed here. Exaltation follows humiliation. Exaltation follows humiliation. And the humiliation is given to us in verse 14. Many were astonished at him. They were astonished because of his form and visage. They were so marred. Well, marred actually is a very mild term here. The word used describes a spoiling, a devastation, a destruction, an appearance-changing affliction that has come upon the servant. And the details of it will be fleshed out and will be discovered very soon in chapter 53, verses 1 through 9. But for the moment, verse 14 says that exaltation follows humiliation and his form and his visage were so marred. The exaltation is talked about in verse 15 here. Kings are astonished that he of all people should be exalted. This man, this servant of all people, he should be exalted. The contrast here is staggering. He will startle kings. When they see God's plan work out, when they look on him whom they pierced, when they shall see what they had not been told, they shall understand what they had not heard. And in that day, they shall realize what the wisdom of God teaches, that the suffering servant will be exalted. The suffering servant will be exalted. 
So that's the first one. The suffering leads to glory, the first stanza. Moving very quickly to the second stanza, the suffering is offensive. The suffering is offensive. In the second stanza here, it begins with, uh, with the development of the theme of suffering. It first shows that it raises disbelief in the people who observe it. And that's exactly what Isaiah says here. First thing, they did not believe the report. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If we paraphrase the first verse, we would say something like, no one has ever imagined. The verse is expressed in the form of questions here. But if anybody would take a serious look at the suffering servant and reflect on the suffering servant, he would eventually come to realize that God is at work. But that realization would take belief and revelation. For ages, Israel did not believe such suffering was at the heart of God's redemptive plan. Israel never had a concept of a suffering Messiah. And yet here, they believed, not the report. The next one, the suffering is observed. Look at verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should uh, desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The response to the suffering servant is so true to life. On the one hand, his beginnings were thought to be insignificant. And on the other hand, his sufferings were offensive. Hear me, please. On the one hand, his beginnings were thought to be insignificant. But on the other hand, his sufferings were offensive. Verse 2 describes his beginnings here. Like a tender plant in a parched ground were his beginnings, which means his beginnings were unlikely. Who would have thought that a carpenter's son coming out of a small place like Nazareth would figure prominently in the divine plan? There was nothing appealing about him or attractive in his appearance that would make Israel to rally to him. Verse 3 reports that he was despised. That is, he was looked down upon. He was held in contempt as well as rejected. And his life was filled with grief and sorrows so that men turned away their faces from him. In short, they did not esteem him. They didn't think much of him and especially his condition. Brothers and sisters, hear me please. These words illustrate vividly a habit that we all share. And this is the habit that we all share. We let the eye cheat the conscience sometimes. We let the eye cheat the conscience sometimes. And we let the sight of suffering blind us to the meaning of suffering. Did you hear that? We let the sight of suffering blind us to the meaning of suffering. We dislike pain and suffering and we turn away from it as human beings, forgetting that it has a reason, it has a future, and it has a God behind it. We look upon things just superficially and we make snap judgments about suffering on the surface. The truth is that suffering is part of God's plan to remind us of the human predicament that we all share and to eventually fit us into the future glory that is, that is awaiting us. So it is only reasonable that the suffering servant himself share the sufferings of this world to redeem the world itself. That's the second stanza, that the suffering is offensive. The third stanza says the suffering is vicarious or the suffering is substitutionary. 53 verses 4 through 6. Now, if people at first made rash observations about the suffering of God's servant, they are soon led in their conscience to realize the purpose of the suffering. In this section, they realize that the suffering is substitutionary. It's vicarious. Let's look at it step by step. The first thing that Isaiah says is that the suffering, the servant's suffering is punishment. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The earliest and the most common moral judgment 
which people pass on pain is that it is penal. It is punishment. People suffer because God is angry with them is what generally people say. This is what Job's friends concluded about his suffering. And here Israel is saying, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And that is, they saw the suffering servant and thought God was striking him. But they know now they were wrong. The hand of God was indeed upon the servant. And the reason is not for his own sin, but for the sins of Israel and the whole world. The suffering servant, uh, the servant suffering is punishment. The second thing, the punishment of the suffering was redemptive. Now we come here to the heart of the gospel or the heart of the heart of the gospel. Look at verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Note the parallelism here in the fifth verse. He was wounded for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. The contrast between he and our all of his suffering was because of our rebellion and our sin. All of his suffering was because of our rebellion and our sin. The second set of expressions, they clarify the purpose of this substitutionary suffering. And they say that this substitutionary suffering is redemptive. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed or by his stripes we are healed. All interpreters of this verse agree that the peace and the healing is ours because the chastisement and the scourging were his on our behalf. And the pain was his because of the consequence of our sin. And the substitution and the suffering was vicarious. And the pain brought spiritual healing and peace, which means the suffering was redemptive. The suffering was redemptive you know that the suffering was uh, substitutionary and redemptive is confessed by israel in verse 6 all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all the verse begins and ends with all substitutionary suffering of the servant touches all who have sinned and we know that is all of us the next one, we move to the next stanza, the fourth stanza. The suffering is accepted. Verses uh, 7 through 9. If the third stanza confessed that it was for the sins of the people the servant suffered, the fourth stanza declares that he himself was sinless, and yet silently he submitted to all the injustice, the penalty of sin that was laid upon him. Look at verse 7. The suffering servant is silent. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is uh, that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. What is so remarkable is that although he was afflicted and oppressed, he opened not his mouth. Such a thing is almost unheard of in the Old Testament. No one else could remain silent under pain in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, when you look at it, sufferers, sufferers broke out into one of two voices or one of two responses. The voice of guilt or the voice of doubt. The sufferer is either confessing his sin, which the suffering has called his attention to, or when he feels, feels no guilt, he is protesting that his suffering is not justified and he is arguing it with God there. So you see both types of people in the Old Testament. David and Jeremiah and Job and other countless other people, uh, including all of us as well, we must confess that we are not silent under pain. And we confess that we deserve it or we complain that we do not deserve it. Those are the two responses that we have for pain. Not so with the suffering servant here. He did not open his mouth, but he was silent like a sheep led to the slaughter. And why was the servant silent while suffering? because he had no guilt of his own and he had no doubt of God's purposes. And he suffered the punishment 
as a service laid uh, as a service that he was doing to God as God laid the punishment of the whole world upon him for the redemption of mankind. Then Isaiah says that the suffering servant is innocent as well. In verses 8 and 9, he says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off uh, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The prophet reports here that the servant was innocent. He had done no violence, no guile was found in him. And yet he was taken to judgment by tyrannical powers. It was judicial murder. And notice how the stanza ends. He was innocent, but he willingly submitted to the oppression, an oppression that carried him all the way to his burial. The fifth stanza we come to finally is the suffering was efficacious. Look at verses 10 through 12. It appeared to many that the death of his servant was an awful tragedy. It was utterly a perversion of justice. And surely the fairest life that ever lived has passed on into oblivion is what people thought. People might look at this and say, God forsakes his own. On the contrary, the fifth stanza begins and says, God's will and pleasure are in it. God's will and pleasure are in it. So notice the first one, the suffering was God's will. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Notice the phrase, the will of the Lord, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to bruise him. That is the theological explanation of the suffering of the servant. The verb uh, pleased here does not mean that God enjoyed it in a sadistical way. That's not what it means. But it basically means that God willed the suffering. The suffering was in the will of God. It is that kind of a pleasure because it was in the will of God. This is the one message which can render any pain tolerable for any one of us. God willed it. God willed it. It is his pleasure. And thus, any that God calls to suffer for his service should make it their purpose to do his will and to please him. That is actual success in the sight of God. The next one. The suffering was for our justification. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The suffering was efficacious. That is, it was powerful to affect its intended result, which is the justification of the sinners who would believe. God made his servant a sin offering for many, so that by their knowledge of him, they might be justified. If you remember, in the upper room the night before he died, Jesus alluded to this passage by saying that the cup that he was taking up and giving it to his disciples, he said it was his blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many, the same language here, which brought the remission of sins and the forgiveness of sins for people. So the effect of the suffering of our Lord is full atonement. Paul later says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be a sin for us, so in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we, the guilty sinners, have been declared righteous before a holy God because he justified us through the death of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, the suffering will lead to exaltation. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes in, uh, intercession for transgressors. With this note, the passage comes full circle. God was satisfied, yes, pleased with the obedient suffering of the servant, whom we know to be our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because he bore the sins of many, that is because he made intercession in the language of Isaiah for sinners, in his self-sacrificing love, God appointed him to glory and honor. And Isaiah here uses military terminology 
and declares that the Lord will divide the spoil. So though despised, rejected and forgotten of men, the servant was almost certain of finding his place of exaltation with God himself, even being seated at the right hand of God. And before him one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that is a brief uh, exposition, if you may call it, of the suffering servant of the Lord. But I want to come back to the heart of it all and remind us of those words of Isaiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The suffering servant who substituted himself for us in our place so we could be redeemed. Very quickly, what are the applications that we can take from here? The first thing, get on your knees as I get on my knees and give thanks to God for opening our eyes. Get on your knees as I get on my knees and give thanks to God for opening our eyes. You know, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ uh, was a mega hit movie in 2004. Reporters talked about it and then they talked about what the death of Christ actually meant. In response to the movie, John Piper wrote a book. It's called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. You may have heard of it. 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. Near the beginning of the book, he makes a statement, and listen to me very carefully, please. The most important question of the 21st century is, why did Jesus Christ come and die? Did you hear that? The most important question of the 21st century is this, he says, why did Jesus Christ come and die? Not many people would, I suppose, pick that as the most important question of the 21st century. Because some might say that there are bigger questions like why is there so much of suffering in the world? Or will there ever be world peace? Or how can I know God for that matter? All these are bigger questions, questions is what people might say. But if you dig a little deeper, you can see what John Piper is saying here. All the other great questions, as we may call them, of our time lead us back to the ultimate questions about God and his purposes in the world. All the big questions of our time lead us back to the ultimate questions about God and his purposes in the world. And hear me please, and we will never understand God until we understand what the cross is. We will never understand God until we understand what the cross is. And no chapter helps us more in that quest than Isaiah 53. This is the very heart of the gospel. And isn't it wonderful that the Lord in his mercy has given us clarity about the purpose of Jesus' death? You know, we go back to Isaiah 53 verse 1 here. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed? The expected answer is no one. Who could believe that a man who died on a cross would rise from the dead? No one. And Paul, that's why later says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And those of us to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed, we could believe. And the truth is, the Lord indeed has revealed his arm and his strength to people in every land across generations to billions and billions of people over a period of centuries. And that includes you and that includes me. You know, let me share this illustration and then move on to my uh, final thought here. A Soviet uh, military officer once saw an old Russian woman devoutly kissing uh, the nail-scarred feet of a statue of Christ in her church. It's, it's a different denominational church. There was a statue in, in the in the compound there and she was devoutly kissing a russian woman an old woman the feet of the statue of christ in a church and this soviet military officer he approached her and addressed her using the common term for grandmother in russian and he asked her this question are you willing to kiss the feet of stalin like that and then she didn't miss a beat she looked at him and she said yes i am willing to kiss the feet of stalin if he dies in my place 
if he dies in my place for my redemption. She understood that Jesus died in her place for her redemption. And the arm of the Lord has been revealed to many billions of people around the world. And you and I are part of that as well. And if God did not reveal Isaiah 53 to us, we would never have believed this message. What an honor it is that God has chosen us and given us understanding about the mystery of the cross. So get on your knees as I get on my knees and give thanks to God for opening our eyes. Give thanks to God for opening our eyes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lastly, I want to say that uh, we should desire that the nations hear the good news about Jesus Christ. We should desire that the nations hear good news about Jesus Christ. Now pick up a world map and place your finger at random somewhere. What nation did you land on? Malaysia, Pakistan, Turkmenistan or Uzbekistan, Tunisia. Let me remind you as I remind myself this morning and it was a stark reminder that came to me as I studied this passage. Christ died to save people from every nation of the world. Christ died to save people from every nation of the world. And that includes North Korea, just as it included the pagan Roman Empire of the time of Jesus. And Isaiah says this, we just read the verse, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been, uh, has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. The Gentiles will find the humiliation of Jesus shocking because they've never heard before that it is through the loss of all things that the Savior will conquer all things. And when Paul was explaining his desire to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, Paul used this very verse of Isaiah 50 to 15 to justify his strategy. You know, in Romans 15 verses 20 and 21, Paul says this. And let me read that for you here. Paul says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah 50 to 15, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. In Paul's case, that meant a call to preach Christ where he had not yet been preached, which is why Paul was in Asia Minor, and then in Greece, and then finally in Rome. In our case, it may be to share Christ with a Muslim, or a Hindu, or a Buddhist, or an animist, or with somebody with no religion at all. You know, brothers and sisters, I want to say this. No power in India or no tyrant in North Korea can stop the gospel from, from being preached, can stop the gospel from spreading around the world. Can we ask God for a heart to join in his work of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ so that those who live in deep darkness will see this light and live. Can we ask the Lord to burden our hearts for one city perhaps? And I'm asking the Lord sincerely about this. One city perhaps, one town, one nation. We should desire that the nations hear the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, I'll just take two more minutes and this is important for all of us to hear and understand. I know there are some of you listening to me this morning who don't know Christ personally. May I speak to you directly for a couple of minutes before I close, please? Let me share the story with you and then I will end with one word of exhortation. Then President Dwight Eisenhower was hospitalized for the final time before he died. Billy Graham paid a visit to him. At one point, President Eisenhower asked him, Dr. Graham, can an old sinner like me be forgiven of my sin? And, the, and Billy Graham assured him that the good news is this, that old sinners, young sinners, big sinners, small sinners, and everyone in between who's a sinner can be forgiven of their sins. Jesus paid the price in full on your behalf, on my behalf. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your sin has been. It doesn't matter how bad your record might have been. If you know that you're a sinner, you can be saved. You may ask the question, Raven, how can I be sure about that? Because we just read, he was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. My dear brothers and sisters, if you want to be saved, remember these four words. Run to Jesus Christ. Run to Jesus Christ. Run to the cross and lay hold of Jesus Christ who loved you and died for you there as the suffering servant. Thank you so much for your patience. I do realize it was a little laborious. It is a tough passage, but I wanted to put that in the context and help us understand what this is about. Uh, let's pray and close. Father God, we want to thank you for this time. We want to thank you for this morning. We want to thank you for reminding us from your word about the sufferings of your servant, the servant of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that is so precious to us a lot. The gospel that saved us, the gospel that we have believed in, and the gospel on which we now stand a lot. That Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he was seen by a whole lot of people. And one day he is coming again to judge the world. But it is our blessed hope because we are going to be with him forever, O Lord. And help us to encourage one another with these words. But O Lord, also help us to be enabled, empowered, and be zealous to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to many people, to as many as we can, so that we may bring many into the fold of God, from darkness into your marvelous light, O Lord. We want to thank you for bringing us into this marvelous light. Thank you for revealing your arm to us, your powerful arm, so that we could behold your servant on the cross and understand it is for my sin, it is for my sake that he died on the cross. His death was redemptive. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the cross. I pray for our church. I pray, O Lord, that if there is anybody listening here who doesn't know you personally, we pray that you would speak to him right now or speak to her right now, O Lord. May they invite you to be their Lord and Savior of their lives, repenting of their sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this morning. We also pray for the rest of the things that are going to happen today. We pray that we would always exalt your servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for us in everything that we do. In Jesus' name. Amen.